Hello, and welcome to Worst Church Ever, the progressive Christian podcast with a light on and possibly a squirrel in the attic, originating from that shitbrick 50s suburb in the shadow of 300 flakeboard mansions. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house are many mansions. And today, like many days, we're considering one analogy or another about bad prefab fundamentalist theology and those pseudo-mansions on the hill, the rows of houses all the same. Mr. Green, so serene, he's got a TV and a TV preacher in every room. Another worst church ever Sunday, or Friday, or whatever, here in status symbol land, with apologies to Carol King and Jerry Coffin. Today we're looking at Genesis 19 because even though it's not the next destination in the narrative lectionary, it continues to seem strange to not go ahead and look at some of these texts in between, especially after having said some controversial things about the chapters leading here. The trafficking of Sarah, the circumcision covenant, Abraham's haggling with God over the particularities of Sodom and Gomorrah's looming destruction. Reading these stories on a surface level is perhaps the worst thing, the most dangerous thing we can do with them, and it creates all kinds of terrible theologies. Choosing to read on the surface level, choosing to read the Bible one particular way, is itself a kind of theology. It happens to not be a very good one. It's the one that decides what the Bible is or has to be before reading it. The one that says the only way we can know God is through religious artifact that makes no such claims about itself. That is unable, in any case, to be aware of itself. Because, remember, number one, it was written by different people in different settings across thousands of years. And two, it's a book. Now, a popular counter-argument or tenet of faith or fundamental belief or whatever you want to call it is that the Holy Spirit knows all of these things and the Holy Spirit inspired the creation of the final Christian canon through the councils that were formed well after biblical times. And that is a common way of thinking when approaching Scripture. But that theology is nowhere to be found in the Bible itself. And if you tell someone who believes it that, just be prepared to love that person through whatever crisis may come or doesn't come. Human beings are good at hearing what we want, all of us, believing what we want, all of us, cramming our shit, all of us, into whatever context gives us comfort, whatever gives us power. Anyway, if you've been with us for a while, you know how we feel about all of that. If you're new here, check out the first few episodes for a sort of initial overview of how we think and why. As for Genesis 19, it's a brutal, ugly text. There's really no way around that. We could just ignore it, but that doesn't help us understand why the so-called traditional interpretations have held such sway, or, for that matter, why they're wrong. Not just ethically wrong, but academically wrong. Wrong from the ground up. Wrong because people, some of them, 
who were newly empowered in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries with the ability to read scripture, to read it in their native tongue, oh, hell, to be able to read, period, applied the ideas of the scientific revolution and the enlightenment to the humanities in general and to the so-called study of scripture specifically. Long story short, by the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we get people, again, some, who were very good at reading English, deciding that whatever the Bible says in plain old English must be infallible, must be the inerrant word of God. Now, you get some people who nuance that claim and say that the scripture was infallible and inerrant and in the original versions, the original languages, but then we don't get, hmm, how can I put this, a totally honest conversation about the fact that rendering the original autographs into any other language is itself an act of interpretation and can't help but be. Now, some people tend to have an idea that fundamentalism or evangelicalism or whatever term you like, whatever theology uh, that conservative Christians that you know or that you yourself may possess, has existed in some unbroken chain since the days of the apostles, and that the Reformation and subsequent revivals have been course corrections, hearkening back to that so-called old-time religion. It's like how older, mostly white people talk about the 50s or 60s, or how I talk about the 90s. But that's not how fundamentalism or evangelicalism or so-called conservative Christianity in its modern context developed. Conservative Christianity is a reaction to the anxieties that were produced by the shifting of dominant Western social and intellectual paradigms. Here, I recommend the general thesis of two books, Worlds Together, Worlds Apart by Robert Tynor and Cosmos Crumbling by Robert Abzug. Tynor's book looks at the way nativist or religious or other kinds of movements all over the world were reactions to the so-called emerging Western liberal paradigm that stressed rationalism and manifested in forms of imperialism and other ways. And Abzug's book talks specifically about the ways in which social and, and economic and political and intellectual anxieties um, sort of crystallized in the formation of conservative Christianities specifically. I could talk about this aspect of particularly American Christianity for hours, partly because I wrote a master's thesis on it once. Suffice it to say, there is no tradition of biblical literism to be found within the Bible itself. How could there be? How could a set of texts that emerged from the oral traditions of generations ever suggest the primacy of inerrant written literature, especially when things like the salvation or damnation of individual souls, not to mention the entire world, are supposedly at stake. Unless, of course, they aren't. Unless, of course, that kind of theology doesn't develop until later, when having the book means being in the room where it's redacted, when having the book means having the power, when having the book, the book, the book, the law, the law, the law, the one and only authorized 
whole truth and nothing but the truth. Just the facts, man. Always man. And that makes you the man. That makes your party, your tribe, your clan with the C, your clan with the K. That makes you the arbiters of truth, the drawers of lines, the angels with flaming Bible swords, keeping everyone who doesn't think like you forever east of Eden. Speaking of, Genesis 19. It's been used by would-be Bible school all-stars for centuries to justify all kinds of evil. Seek to read it on its own terms, that is, seek to take it seriously, seek to treat it seriously, and they'll say you hate the Bible, that you can't abide by this term they invented, biblical authority, this term they used to baptize misogyny, racism, homophobia, a million other burning kinds of hatreds. I could go on. Sometimes I vamp. But let's go ahead and look at the text. Trigger warnings ahead in three, two, one. I don't say that to be glib, but because I've started to think trigger warnings themselves need their own kind of warning. The triggers here are rape, incest, and genocide. I'm also triggered, of course, by the willful misreading of this horrid story as some sort of pious bromide on one hand and a deadly godless polemic on the other. Now it all starts out hospitable enough. Genesis 19, starting at verse 1, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. All right, that's the end of verse 2. So, who arrived in Sodom? Apparently, two angels. And apparently, these are two of three angels, or if you like, heavenly beings, that appeared to Abraham in chapter 18. We actually skip that part of the story to get into the nitty-gritty of Abraham's great bargain with God. See last episode, Abraham's Big Bad Daddy Issues, for more on that. But in both cases, Abraham's and Lot's, a central theme in the narrative is the importance of hospitality, especially to strangers. Now, this is a theme and really a theological linchpin that's going to be important in the entire ancient Near East, both within the Hebrew or Israelite or Jewish communities, as well as in the communities of their neighbors. It was an, a widespread ethical and in some cases religious norm in the ancient Near East. And if this were reading Rainbow, I'd say you don't have to take my word for it. What's important from chapter 18, from chapter 18 here is that Abraham extended hospitality, and that's the immediate context of his confab with the Lord. All the more ironic, then, that Abraham, having met the requirements of righteousness in terms of hospitality to strangers, to foreigners, to travelers, has to plead with Yahweh to not go ahead and smite every person in Sodom and Gomorrah. But we digress. In chapter 19, two of the three visitors have come to Sodom, I suppose to case the joint, in keeping with Yahweh's promise to spare the city if there are at least ten righteous people in it. Lot, who is himself a resident alien in this community, extends his hospitality, referring to these visitors as his lords, himself as their servant, and then inviting them to wash their feet and stay the night. 
Some commentators theorize that the washing of a stranger or non-relative's feet established that person as a de facto member of one's household and, in the eyes of the wider community, under that host's protection. That might seem like mere courteousness to us or something that's nice or even proper or ethical to do. But remember, these were the days before there was such a thing as the hospitality industry. On this point, Jay Michelson says, quote, This emphasis on hospitality is entirely of a piece with what we know of the ancient Near East, where hospitality was a core value. The ancient Near East had no holiday inns. Hospitality was essential for survival, and its presence or absence tells us much about the ethical character of people. Now, I'm going to stop there. Notice he didn't say it tells us about the ethical character of a group of people or a race of people or a city of people or a tribe of people. He's talking about individuals. And then he says this, consider Luke, and here I'm quoting again, quote, consider Luke 7, through 46, where Jesus rebukes Simon that I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, you gave me no kiss, my head with oil you did not anoint. Hebrews 13.2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And Romans 12.13, Christians should be given to hospitality, as well as Titus 1.8 and Timothy 3.2. Treating guests properly is no minor virtue. It is of paramount concern to the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. That's the end of Michelson's quote. Now, for their part, the angels or men or whoever they are initially resist Lot's offer, and it may well be that that was customary, this declination, this declining of this initial offer, and that could have been part of the polite exchange and the cultural expectations of the terms of being brought into one's household. Uh, indeed, it could be part of the ritual even around the extension of hospitality. And we do this today. People offer us, uh, offer help to us, and we say things like, no, we couldn't, or no, I insist, or no, I don't want to impose, and then they insist, and then we go back and say, well, if it's no trouble, you've done this, and this has been done in your relationships and in your own interactions. It was the same way then, although it might have been slightly more codified or more expected. Going back to the text, verse 3 says, but he, now here we mean Lot, but he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. That's the end of verse 5. Okay, first of all, that reading was from the NIV translation, and that's for no other reason than it's the first thing that comes up on Bible Gateway. The verb that the NIV and many other translations translate as have sex with is the Hebrew word or the Hebrew verb, which means to know. And this is the word that's responsible for all those old jokes about knowing someone in the biblical sense. The New Revised Standard Version preserves the verb to know. But what these men are demanding is not just sex. It's not knowledge only, carnal or otherwise. Put simply, the text should read, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can rape them. These men, certainly not every man in Sodom, 
have come to the house of Lot, the resident alien, intent on degrading, humiliating, asserting power over raping, literally and figuratively, these even newer arrivals. This is not about same-sex attraction or about sex between men. This is about a xenophobic will to power, a degradation of the stranger, of the other, a violation certainly of ancient Near Eastern norms and expectations about hospitality and protection, norms that made things like travel and trade possible, norms that made life possible. The problem with these people isn't homosexuality. The problem is their attempted gang rape. Full stop. Now we pick up in verse 6. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do... Sorry. This is... I'm going to reread that. Chapter 8. Verse 8. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. All right, I'm going to stop there. Fuck you, Lot. I mean, seriously. These men, these visitors, whoever they may be, are certainly under your protection, but so too are your daughters. I'm going to go off script for a minute and just sit with this. I mean... There's no way to justify this offer that Lot makes. There's no way to gloss over it or make it seem less terrible than it is. To try to protect these visitors and fulfill the norms of hospitality, or perhaps for other reasons, Lot offers his daughters, who are virgins, uh, over to the crowd to be raped. Now, the crowd is not interested in raping the daughters, Partly because, I would think, their real goal here is to degradate the foreigners, degradate the strangers, degrade and humiliate and abuse these visitors who have no business crossing into their border, taking away their jobs. You get the picture. So all I can really do is point out how despicable it is that Lot would do this. A few episodes ago, we talked about the idea that in the court of Pharaoh and later in the court of Abimelech, Abraham, that marginalized immigrant, trafficked his own wife for his own safety and for his own well-being. Lot, Abraham's nephew, reproduces the trauma here, or at least tries to. The Bible is full of insights into family systems, and especially, as it turns out, the recreation of trauma. From a psychological and biochemical standpoint, we know this is something traumatized people do. They reproduce their trauma. Sarah, who was trafficked to the Egyptian pharaoh by Abraham, ends up trafficking Hagar, her Egyptian slave, to Abraham. Now here in this part of Genesis, Lot, Abraham's nephew, attempts to appease a hostile xenophobic mob by trafficking his daughters to save the hyper-valued men that have come under his protection. What do they say? Hurt people hurt people. In recent decades, neuroscience has confirmed what the scriptures seem to know. Traumatized people reproduce their trauma because trauma imprints upon and changes neural pathways and biochemical responses. 
There's a reason Bessel van der Klock named his seminal work on these findings The Body Keeps the Score. The same story is reproduced in the Bible yet again next time in the book of Judges. That story is arguably worse. Back to the text. Verse 9. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Okay. If you thought I was reaching when I said part of this is about xenophobia or part of it is about asserting power over the other and degrading the other and abusing the other, if that's not true, why do these men surrounding the house make it very clear that Lot is a stranger in their land? This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he, Lot, wants to play our judge. We'll treat him worse than them. Did you catch that? They're not sexually attracted or interested in Lot or in these visitors. They're interested in asserting their power over people who have invaded their space. This is what this text is about. And it tracks with everything we've talked about from the trafficking of Sarah to the trafficking of Hagar it tracks with the discussion about the definition of violence being physical trauma or physical pain or physical changes asserted over somebody against that person's will by people who hold power over them. It all tracks. It's interesting to me that the deeper we dig into the scripture, the further we go beneath the surface Sunday school stories the more coherence we actually find, but not in the ways many of us have been taught to expect. Now, I'm going to take a departure from Genesis 19 here and talk about what this means in terms of uh, ramifications for Christian theology, because here we're dealing specifically with Hebrew scriptures, but in deconstructing fundamentalism, um, we have to deal, obviously, with Christian theologies. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks a few times about sexual immorality, and often some of the things that he has said are translated into English as homosexuality being uh, a vice or an abomination. Now, you need to know, and I'll say this again later, but you need to know that that word homosexual did not exist when Paul was writing or when the Torah was composed. It did not exist in the time of the prophets. It did not exist until the mid-1800s, and it wasn't included in any English translations of the Bible until 1946. If you're around my age, that was around the time that your grandparents were getting married. So in the living memory of your own grandparents, that word did not appear in the Scripture. Okay. Well, it turns out, as may not surprise you, that when Paul talks about the dynamics that get rendered as homosexual immorality or homosexual actions or behavior, his concern isn't about the physics or biology. It's about power differentials and intentions. A few years ago, I saw a tweet from some far-right group saying that Christians should share their faith with quote-unquote homosexuals to help them see that Jesus has a better way. 
And of course, uh, I'm a Christian, even though I'm a bad one, even though I'm the worst. So I believe that Jesus has a better way for everybody, right? But that's got nothing to do with being gay or straight. This group meant that Jesus has a better way for gay people to order their lives. And that means specifically not being gay. It inextricably ties this so-called better way to heteronormative expectations. And that shouldn't surprise us coming from conservative Christian outlets or groups. The thing is, there's zero basis for that kind of assertion in any of the sayings attributed to Jesus or even in Paul's writings. Jesus said literally nothing about same-sex attraction. He said nothing about same-sex relationships. Paul said nothing about the same-sex union of equals. Both Jesus and Paul were intensely concerned that we not abuse power and that we embrace people society has cast out. So if I were to have a conversation like this with a fundamentalist or an evangelical who's committed to the borrowed tradition that is modern Christian conservatism, they might say to me, well, what about Mark 10, 6 through 9? That scripture finds Jesus saying this. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, that's the text that people use. Now, we're going to look at the larger context of that of that passage. We're going to go back to verse 1 to do it. Jesus then left the place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Verse 5, which is still before verses 6 through 9 that people point to. Verse 5, Jesus says, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. I'm going to stop right there. Jesus says Moses wrote the law. He doesn't say God wrote the law. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Verse 6, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I read that before. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So now you have the fuller context for Jesus' commentary on divorce. The context for verses 6 through 9 is that Jesus is crossing the Jordan and he finds himself immediately in the midst of a pharisaical proof-texting session, most likely designed to get Jesus to say something the religious establishment or just people in general would find, to use a much misused modern term, term, unbiblical. Let's look at this again. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Question mark. Jesus' response, What did Moses command you? Their response, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus says, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why am I repeating this? Because what people like to do is take three or four verses completely out of context and forget the larger picture that frames the teaching. Obeying the dictates that were attributed to Moses had become a near obsessive compulsion in the life and the practice of many people in the religious establishment of Jesus's day and in our own. And there have been heirs of that compulsion in every century. In the earliest Christian scriptures, we find religious groups, the Pharisees, as well as the pro-circumcision camp of early Christians that are talked about in the book of Galatians and others, using texts to exclude people from their understanding of God's radical welcome, or if you like, God's radical hospitality. There's that word again. That's part of what makes Jesus' response about divorce so fascinating. Jesus is literally saying the law of Moses, that is to say scripture, regarding divorce was written because your hearts are hard. But God's heart is bigger. He's literally saying, I know what the scripture says or what you think it means, but God's heart is bigger. Now, this male-female language is certainly descriptive, and people like to read it as being proscriptive. Well, Jesus reasserts what's said in the Hebrew scriptures. God made them male and female. Male and female, he created them. Well, sure. But that language also genders God, and God is the ultimate non-binary, right? Furthermore, it turns out that that kind of language where you talk about two ends of a spectrum is often or almost always in Hebrew scripture a literary device meant to include the spaces between. Near and far isn't just something Grover liked to say on Sesame Street when the scriptures and the prophets and the Psalms, when they say things like, and all people will come from near and far, it doesn't just mean people who are your neighbor and people who live 10,000 miles away. It means near and far and everyone in between. East and West, North and South, and everyone in between. I could go on and on and on with examples of this literary device. It's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. And you can Google gender identities in ancient Jewish thought. And what you'll find is fascinating. It's nothing you were taught in Sunday school, and it's not anything I was even taught 20 years ago in seminary. Now, you may say, well, that was ancient Jewish thought. That's not the scripture. Well, guess what? Where did scripture come from? Where did the Hebrew scriptures come from? From oral traditions, right? And <laughs> we don't know exactly when those oral traditions were written down. But these merisms are part of the earliest witnesses of Hebrew scripture. They're poetic and literary devices that are consistent. So... If you're using this text to talk about binary gender roles or to talk about homosexuality or even about divorce, you're very far off the mark. The law of Moses may say X, but I tell you God's heart is bigger. That's Jesus. That's not me saying that. Jesus has deconstructed this mosaic proof text 
If you use this text as a proof text regarding Jesus' view on what we call homosexuality, you realize pretty soon it's untenable because the text itself begins with Jesus himself imploding what seems like a slam-dunk gotcha moment of fundamentalism. Notice, too, that it's talking about male-directed divorce only. Interesting, right? The other hugely important thing about this passage is that even when we use it to define God's view of marriage, which, by the way, is ridiculous, there are, I don't know, half a dozen at least, maybe more, views and definitions of marriage in the Hebrew Scriptures, and Paul himself actually throws a ton of shade on marriage as an institution in his writings. We ignore all that for the sake of convenience and whatever. But anyway... (laughs) Here's what comes next in the text. Right after verses 6 through 9, which people like to use and misuse, here's verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. (laughs) Very few people, even fundamentalists, are nearly as fastidious about that part of the story as they are about the ones that seem, at first glance, on a surface level reading in unexplicated English, some sort of definition of gender roles in marriage. Even if you don't want to believe what I'm saying about marisms and all of what that means for these approaches to Scripture, the textual, revi- the textual device rather remains. Jesus begins a discussion on relationships and law by completely blowing up the expectation of religious elites based on their singular interpretation of a given text. That's Jesus for you. I know what the scripture says, but God's heart is bigger. Okay, well, what about Paul? Certainly he writes about homosexuality. Certainly he says it's bad and wrong and everything else. Certainly he wouldn't mind Sodom and Gomorrah being wiped off the face of the earth. Well, people turn often to 1 Timothy 1, through, uh, 1, 9 through 10, and 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Both of these scriptures have been used if, as proof texts to prove the idea that modern same-sex consensual relationships between adults of equal standing and volition are akin to every kind of evil. I'll focus here on the First Timothy passage because it provides a fuller context. Chapter or Verse 9, We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. I'm going to stop there. That's actually what Jesus just said, right? The, Moses gave you this law because your hearts are hard. Anyway, back to Paul. It's made for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. Now remember, this is a Greek, this is an English translation of, of Greek writing, and Greek writing in, that was itself, when referring to Hebrew scriptures, was often referring to the Hellenized Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that most of the Jewish people in this era would have been using. All right, back to verse 9. I'll start that verse over. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
Now, I said that that word homosexuality, which appears here in verse 10, is not in the scriptures. This is an interpretive move made by, trans by translators for those practicing homosexuality. That doesn't appear in the text. The verb, or rather the, the words that we have in the original language don't say for gay, that gay people or homosexuals or those practicing homosexuality or those practicing same-sex, uh, having same-sex sexual relations or same-sex attractions. It doesn't say anything like that. The actual word itself is really hard to define, but it's akin, it would seem, to pederasty, to the uh, abuse of an, an older male abusing a younger male in most cases, which was a norm in Roman society. So here's Paul, who is a Jew by birth, he's a Pharisee by training, he's a Syrian by nationality, and he's a Roman citizen because of the extension of the Roman power all over that part of the world. Now, not everybody in Paul's shoes were Roman citizens, but Paul, for some reason or another, has been granted Roman citizenship. So Paul is dealing in multiple settings and in multiple um, milieus or mores, if you like, and Paul is very aware that there's a milieu, a moray, in which the quote-unquote relationship between uh, an older man and a minor male boy is completely accepted in Roman society. And most conscientious translators zero in on that as the locus of what Paul is talking about here. Let's look at the larger context of this passage. The passage really doesn't begin at verse 9, but at verse 8. And verse 8 says, we know the law is good if one uses it properly. Verse 11, which is usually left out of so-called conservative proof texting on this issue, says that the sound doctrine that Paul's referring to is doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. In other words, people stop this pericope at verse 10, but verse 11 actually continues the sentence. People like to stop it at sound doctrine, but chapter verse, verse 11 modifies that compound noun, sound doctrine, and qualifies it as doctrine that conforms to the gospel according, or the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And even there, Paul is missing the mark because he keeps calling God he, right? But verses 8 and 11 are essential bookends. They guide what we're supposed to do and not do with Scripture. So we've already talked about the idea that the gospel message of Jesus does not condemn loving relationships between same-sex consenting adults of equal standing. And in Jesus' discussion of divorce and marriage, Jesus is actually exercising what Paul calls the proper use of the law. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. It's impossible to trace convictions and conclusions to an interpretation of the Bible, especially a so-called literal view, if we don't know what the Bible actually says. In other words, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these things and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. 
Guess, guess where that's from? That's immediately before the section in 1 Timothy that we just looked at. Paul frames it from the start with humility. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Jesus says, I know what the scripture says. I know why Moses gave you that law. It's not so you could lord it over people. It's because your hearts were hard. But God's heart is bigger. These passages from Paul, this teaching of Jesus isn't about consensual homosexual relationships. It can't be. Now, whether it refers only to the pederasty I talked about or perhaps to temple prostitution, which was also a form of sexual violence and sexual oppression and was also an exercise in power over the bodies of people between whom there was a differential of power. Remember, that's the definition of violence that we talked about a few episodes ago. Whatever it's referring to, it's not referring, and it can't be referring to consensual relationships between loving equals. It's not referring to sexual orientation. It's talking about abuse and coercion, things that we'd expect to find in lists of practices that are not manifested in the kingdom of God. These passages apply to abuse, the exercise of power, just like what's happening in Genesis 19 with the story of the men of the city of Sodom. The prohibitions and the uh, disgust for what's happening is because what's happening is the will toward violation. To violate people on the margin for one's own pleasure or need. Far from being outdated prohibitions against something the writers of the Bible were not even concerned with, these scriptures are evergreen, given what we know about how widespread this kind of abuse has continued to be even in the church. So taking these writings of Paul, these sayings of Jesus, or taking the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah seriously doesn't just mean being right about how to translate words or how to think about scripture. It means working. Working to end human trafficking. Working to expose and report sexual abuse. Working with and for survivors. And doing all of that with the conviction that we have conforming to the gospel of the blessed God, which God entrusts to us. It also means standing up, and I would argue standing with, Jesus. For the protection, dignity, and equal rights of all people. And working together to tear down the structures that continue to abuse and dispossess members of the LGBTQ plus community or any community. It means a church convinced and convicted of a holy mission to build the kinds of communities Jesus would recognize. I know what you think the scripture says, but God's heart is bigger. Thank you for joining us on this extended episode of Worst Church Ever. I hope it finds you well and blessed. Bye for now. Thank you.